Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to the sound of the building. It's like a really human sound, some of them. And uh, nice to see some, uh, some new faces. And I don't want to say old faces. <laughs> so, for the next few months, we're going to uh, study some um, teachings by a teacher named Dogen, Ehe Dogen. And um, tonight I just wanted to talk a little bit about Dogen's life and who he is and why I've chosen uh, his fascicles to study. Because I really think he speaks to our modern temperament and uh, really the spirit and the language of our, of our time. And uh, we're going to study over the next few months a fascicle that he wrote in the 13th century called Mountains and Rivers. And I'm actually going to hand it out to you next week so that you can take it home and memorize it. Um, so tonight I just want to speak a little bit about Dogen and what he taught about meditation and, and just try and sum up Dogen a little bit, because I know those of you who've been studying with me for a while know I'm always quoting Dogen, but I think many of you maybe have never uh, studied Dogen or really know kind of uh, when he lived or about his life and, and so on. So, so that's what I hope to do tonight. So please ask questions if I say anything technical that maybe you don't understand. Also, in April, I'm going to go to Japan and I'm going to visit Eheji, which is the the uh, monastery that he founded, which is uh, in the Fukui prefecture, which is not so far from Kyoto, uh, where he taught. So um, this is also my own preparation. This is basically what I do. I have something going on in my life, and I just work it out on you. <laughs> and then you tell me you know, if I'm on the right track, or not. which basically means they're either falling asleep or I never see you again. <clears throat> so Dogen is famous as being the founder of Soto Zen, which is one of the largest sects of Zen Buddhism, one of the largest schools of Zen Buddhism. And um, he was born in 1200, so he lived for the first half of the, thir the 13th century. He was born in Japan, and he died in 1253. So he was a young man when, when he died. Is anyone here 53? Exactly 53? 54? 52? Okay. No one here is actually 53. But, anyways, if you know somebody who's 53, which you probably do, it's young, still, still young and vibrant. Um, Dogen was born into a family that was very involved in uh, the politics of Japan at that time and, and that prefecture. Um, so, uh, in the 13th century, you know, by the time you were two years old, your family knew what you should do, and your life was pretty much mapped out for you, especially if you had a family very involved in politics. So this was the case for Dogen. Um, but his father died when he was three years old, 
So when he was three years old, his father passed away. And then five years later, when he turned eight, apparently he was right at the time he turned eight, uh, his mother died. So I don't know how many people in this room have had a parent die when they were very young. But to have your father and mother die both before you turn eight. My son's eight right now. So I can really feel what, what that might be like, even though both, both my parents are still, still alive. Um, but at a young age, the thing that really, really tormented him was impermanence, as you can imagine. Uh, so he talks about how at a very young age, the thing he thought about all the time was impermanence. And for those of you that have children or are around children, probably by the time they're five, this is something kids are thinking about a lot already. And if you know any eight-year-olds, um, they're talking about impermanence and death all the time. And then it kind of goes away around nine or ten and comes back again in the teenage, teenage years. This is very common with, with young kids. So you can imagine just at this age where you're really aware of the transience of things that then both of your parents uh, pass away. And he was really alone. And so when he was 13, he did something that now doesn't seem radical to do in Japan, but in the 13th century was radical, which is he left the uh, stream of politics that he was expected to join, and he became a monk. Because he thought that by becoming a monk, if he really learned how to meditate deeply and to concentrate, he would be able to resolve this crisis he was in around how to live a life when everything is changing. And, and, you know, most people in their lifetime, they usually fall on one side or the other. Either they're really aware of how they're on a kind of linear path, which is a great illusion, I think, that everything is stable, their job is stable, their relationship is stable, you know. Or they're really on the other side, which is when you're tormented by impermanence, where you become nihilistic, right? Nietzsche. Which is, and what we mean by nihilism is that if, if everything's changing, then what's the point of anything? Why build something? Why make something? Why love somebody? Why love somebody if it's just going to break your heart? Has anyone here had their heart broken? You can't choose if you lose your parents at a young age. You lose your mom and you lose your dad. You, you don't choose that. But you can choose to join the world. But how do you join the world if you've already felt such, you know, such a, a tragic death in your life? How, how do you join again? Has anybody ever felt this way? Where you've lost something really deep? And it's hard to ever... Has anyone here ever had a relationship end where you your heart was really open, and, and you know maybe they died or whatever? Who knows? And it's kind of hard to get back on. You say get back on the horse again. So it's hard to 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 stand up again. You know. So this is what Dogen felt at thirteen. At thirteen, he he just left and went to a monastery, and wanted to really learn how to sit. Um, after 10 years of studying in Japan, he started to feel like the teachings in Japan were not as profound or rich as he thought they could be. So he went to where he thought the source was, which was China. Because, of course, Buddhist practice went from India through, it spread to Pakistan, Sri Lanka, but it went over to um, China and then to Japan. And we're like this too, right? All the yogis in the room. If you really want to get to the source, you have to go, you know, on an airplane somewhere. And traveling from Japan by boat to China at that time was very dangerous. And he did. He went to China and he went and studied in a monastery in China. And that's where he had his really big awakening. He was 
sitting in a monastery in China practicing. This is after almost a decade. So those of you that think it's going to happen tonight. (laughs) And he's sitting on retreat, long days of retreat, and then the person next to him started falling asleep while they were sitting. Has anyone ever seen this before? (laughs) The person next to you, we call it the monk's dance. (laughs) When you do this. Uh, The person next to him was falling asleep. And the teacher came over, because this was the era in Japan where the teacher would come over and they would hit you. But the teacher, instead of hitting him, said to this person next to Dogen, drop away body and mind. Body and mind drop away. Some translations, it's cast away. This is an interesting teaching. Has anyone here ever been on retreat and been really sleepy? Or maybe tonight? And the teacher came over and yelled at them really strong. Drop away body and mind. What does that mean? Let go of body and mind. Sleepiness? Let go of it. Let go of sleepiness. Your ideas about your body, your ideas about your mind, let it go. Let it go. And when this happened, Dogen really heard the teaching. And he felt the whole body and mind let go. It didn't mean that your body and mind will disappear. Your body and mind disappears. It means you let go of your idea of your body, your idea of your mind. It's the thing about thinking, is that it always feels like I'm thinking, right? It's the thing about thinking, is that when you're in meditation and you're thinking, it's always propelled by the feeling that there's a me thinking, You see? So when the teacher was talking about sleepiness, Dogen heard it as an instruction for himself. This is interesting in the dynamics of a room, right? I could be talking about Dogen, and for one of you, this is really talking about your own life, right? That's why it's good to listen when there's questions. Because you might think, oh, that's that question they're asking again about sleepiness. Oh, I know what Michael's going to say. And then you miss it. But Dogen probably heard this instruction a million times, and this time he really heard it. So he gets up, and he follows his teacher into the the interview room and says, body and mind have dropped away. And the teacher says, yes. And then Dogen leaves China and goes back to Japan. He teaches another 10 years in Kyoto, and then he abruptly leaves Kyoto in 1243. Um... And um, builds a monastery called Eheji that's still there. And um, Eheji has a reputation of being worse than the military. Um, So some of you may go practice there. It's hard for foreigners to practice there anymore. Um, But you can actually still visit Eheji. I I know somebody who who, who practiced at Eheji. Uh, who lives in the States right now. And he told me that one of the practices they do at Eheji, which was in the tradition of Dogen, and I've never read this anywhere, but I found this really fascinating, is that um, the whole, most of the monastery is built out of wood. So every year they move, they move just like a joist or a column, a centimeter, just every year, so that apparently over all these centuries, the whole monastery is actually moved around (laughs) because they keep the monastery alive in this tradition of impermanence, right? And they just move one part of it every year, one centimeter, so that none of the original monastery is actually in that place. Isn't that interesting? It reminds me, was anybody here when the Burmese monks were, were here? Yeah. They talked about, I don't know if they talked about this in public, but in private they talked about how uh, their practice as young monks was they would never live in the same kuti, in in the same monk's cabin for more than three days. They would always move every three days. So they never were attached to like this bed, that view, these sheets. This reminds me of that a little. Um... (coughs) 
And Dogen's practice has everything to do with intimacy. It's like when you walk into this room, when I walk into this room, I try not to walk into this room and see ordinary people. When I come into this room, I always bow when I come into this room, and I always try and see everyone in this room as a Buddha. And this can be a practice you you can do. And this is very much the, the kind of style that Dogen had. How do you see the human and also see the Buddha nature of each person that gets so covered over, not only by them, but by the way we see them? Um, and Dogen is known for really teaching how meditation practice is the deepest kind of intimacy. Sounds peculiar. Because most of us, when we hear the word intimacy, we think of like under the covers for three days. Um, So today I I looked up, I don't have good, with Sanskrit I can look things up and give you good stories, but Japanese is terrible. Uh, I don't know, maybe Mina, you can help me out. um, So I looked up today the two words Dogen uses to talk about meditation, and I found it very interesting. One of them is shinsetsu, which is a compound character. And the definition is uh, as close as a parent. This is how he talks about meditation. As close as a parent. Isn't that nice? And uh, so, so not smothering and not abandoning. This is what Donald Winnicott called the good enough mother. He, Donald Winnicott, the great child psychologist, had this idea that that really uh, healthiness in a child is when the child can play and the parent's nearby. And the child can be on their own playing with the parent nearby. Yeah, Close as a parent. It's a really, really beautiful. Some of us, we hear that and it's like... <laughs> anybody have a mom who's just like... Right? Or just not around. Right? So just, and Winnicott had this nice term, right? Good enough. He called it the good enough mother. (laughs) It's a great term. The good enough student. This is a practice we should do as students, right? Just good enough. (laughs) How many of you are trying to get perfect students? Just good enough. The other word he uses to talk about meditation is mitsu which is also a compound character. And the definitions I found today, uh, these are beautiful. Uh, uh, Like tightly woven cloth. This is an image for meditation. Or uh, to weave, or being so close that it can't be known or seen as separate. Being so close to something that it can't be seen or known as separate. Or, the last one was my favorite, a secret because it's unknowable. And isn't that what meditation's like? It's like opening to this place when you stop analyzing and trying to control everything by figuring out your emotions. A lot of people get in meditation for the first five years, they think it's just therapy. Where you just, I'm going to just figure out my emotional life here. And they sit there going, you know, like indexing lovers, putting people here and there, moving things around, planning, you know, falling in love with the person in front of them. <laughs> um, but actually, to open up to this space where what you're feeling, you open up to it in this way where it's just unknowable. Not unknowable because you don't know what it is, but unknowable because you can't actually know what it is. It's the existential level of practice. Practice might be healing in an emotional level. There's no doubt about that. It's healing for our stress. It's healing for our anxiety. But it's also giving us ballast or stability at an existential level. And that's that place where you could say, and Dogen seems to be saying, it's so intimate that it's like a secret. Because you're, you're touching something unknowable. Does this make sense? This is kind of like... It's beautiful how he can push language uh, like this. And, um, 
it's interesting when you become intimate with something, because as you become intimate with something, it becomes intimate with you. And meditators don't like that. Because like, I'm going to really get to know this anger. And then the anger is like, I'm going to really get to know you. You're so open, here I come. And then, you know, people always come in and say, I'm meditating, I'm getting so fucking angry. (laughs) But actually, it's healing because at some level, maybe this is the anger you can't feel. And now meditation is like the good enough mother who's holding you there, is just close enough as a parent. Maybe when you were a kid, you couldn't get angry, you know. So you've grown up as an adult, as, a, as an under-expressor. And you've compressed something in you. And then you start meditating, and it's just like the good enough mother there. And then the meditation holds you, and then you find, oh, there's anger coming. You know? Or it could be some. maybe it's joy. Maybe you're one of those people who, you know, like doesn't feel any joy. Wear black turtlenecks all the time, you know? <laughs> and then you see that life and practice just become intimacy. What's closer to you than your life? And when you're in your life, you don't know what it is, because you're in it. You only know what it is when you're not in it. That's why philosophy can be so bad for practice. Because we're just trying to figure out what set we're in all the time. Trying to take a picture of what we're in. Um, Any questions before I keep going? Because what I want to just cover now is a little bit about... um, Sort of four of Dogen's main teachings. Yeah. Just the many questions. So when his parents died, he who looked after him till he went to the monastery. I, I think that I think that there's I don't know. I have to. I, I, the biography I have is missing some things, but I just got a new one. But the bio that those years are a hundred pages, and I couldn't get through them for today. Oh, okay. But so there's a missing few years because he's eight when his mother dies. And then he goes to the monastery when he's 13 and practices 10 years. And then he goes to Japan 10 years and then comes back. His life seems to be in these decade-long... So those few years, I don't know. I don't know. In one one biography, it also says he was an illegitimate son. But I don't know what that means. How can you be illegitimate? Sorry, you're not legitimate. You came from a stork. Okay, so just to wrap up this notion of intimacy. So when something's arising in practice, liking it or not liking it just doesn't matter. Liking it and not liking it is still not intimacy. So how do we drop into more of an unmediated field? To, to just sit right in the middle of what's happening. And that's not just formal meditation, but actually to sit right in the middle of your experience. Right in the middle of it. Last week we called it the place, the solutionless place. How most of the time we're living in this place where we've got these problems and we're constantly just finding solutions to them. And yet there's kind of this deeper level that we're not touching because we're just managing things. Does any, has anybody had times in their life like this? Or maybe it's right now. Just like moving this over there, moving that over there, making this decision. And it's all kind of like up here. But there's no like connection with a deeper source for, for what's motivating us. And maybe that's why so many people have meaningless jobs. Because they're like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm just going to do that. I'm probably good at that. And then, again, it's kind of something's empty. And then, if they're still up here, it's like, well, then the job didn't give me what I thought. But we don't get into that place where, well, what, what about that deeper motivation under there? Or I'm just going to take, uh, you know, a job of, like, service, and I don't care if I don't get paid. 
Have you, have you heard of this? Yoga teachers do this, right? It's like, I just want to give yoga to everybody. And then, like, no, you, know, you can't take care of yourself. I, w- I went through this as a yoga teacher because when I started practicing, uh, yoga was just becoming popular in Toronto. So I taught. There were so many people in the classes. And then I decided to stop teaching in yoga studios. And then nobody came. I, like, started teaching out of my house. Nobody came. One person, two people for the first three years. Because I thought at that time, all I was into was spirituality and the intellect. That's all I cared about. Money was just like, but boy, was I wrong. Because money is also sacred. You know? How do you also be intimate with money? It's also part of our practice. So that's another example of kind of an under, uh, unexamined way of just moving things around. Oh, I've got this idea. I'm just giving, Right. And then, you know, 10 years later, you're just completely burnt out. You're just like a puddle shivering on Queen Street. People (laughs) stepping over you, dropping a dime. Thanks for the teaching. Okay. I don't know if an academic would agree with this. This is mostly just from my own reading. But I think Dogen had four main teachings. And I think if I just mention these, it might help you next week when we drop into into the text. The first one is, the, is this phrase, dropping body and mind. And his teacher yelling out, uh, drop away body and mind. Body and mind drop away. And really what this means is, is acting, actively letting go. Actively letting go. And here's what Dogen says about it. And this is from his text called Bendoa, which means engaging one it causes new translation says engaging the wholehearted way, which I love. Here's what Dogen says: When one displays the Buddha mudra with one's whole body and mind, so that means when when you're sitting <coughs> in meditation, you become a mudra or a, or a seal or a gesture. When you display this, which I, I love this image. Remember we talked about this on the retreat for those of you on the retreat that when you're sitting in meditation. You're just offering yourself. Right? So when you display your body and mind in full Buddha mudra, which is this posture, with this posture, <clears throat> sitting upright in samadhi, even for a short time, the entire world becomes Buddha mudra. Everything and all space in the universe becomes completely enlightened. It's a beautiful image. An ecologist would love this image, right? When you're sitting there and you're open and this analyzing starts to settle, you don't get enlightened. The whole world gets enlightened. So he's just, he's taken this idea of enlightenment and he's completely flipped it. When you drop away your ideas of body and mind, your ideas about everything, then everything becomes Buddha. Try this with someone you love. You drop away all of your resentment. That's practice. Just eat. And he says here, I love this part, even for a short time. <laughs> Isn't that nice he added that in there? When you drop your resentment, even for a short time, you don't get enlightened but the other person becomes a Buddha. It's so beautiful. So this is a theme in Dogen, is he always inverts enlightenment, where it's not something you can get. This is his way of understanding enlightenment. Um, And at the same time, the world is constantly letting go. Right? Walls are letting go. Trees are letting go. I'm going to go to Japan in cherry blossom season. And, the, and how long do cherry blossoms last? Long Never long enough. <laughs> yeah. Just the trees letting go of their flowers. So actually, it, so again, Dogen's saying, like, you don't have to act so much letting go. But when you're still, the whole world's letting go. It's like, you know when people say, you know that thought you keep have, Let go of it. Right? But you can't let go of it. 
because it was never yours. So you could invert that and say, well, the thought of anxiety that you keep repeating, rumination, if you're still, it lets go of you rather than you letting go of it. Does that make sense? Sort of? Yeah? Because you're, you're holding on to it, but in a way it could be thought of the other way around. That you're allowing it to stay there, and as you get quiet, it lets go of you and goes to someone else. <laughs> so for Dogen, that's really what it's like to be, to be in your life. Uh, the second main teaching of Dogen is called Shusho Noito, which means the oneness of practice and awakening. That active Buddhas don't get enlightened. That practice is not a method or a technique to get enlightened. That you are enlightened and practice as an expression of enlightenment. This is a fabulous idea. This reminds me of the story in the Lotus Sutra about the Buddha warning about your attaching to the idea of enlightenment and saying it's just a, what was it? A, um, a, a, a phantom city. Same idea, right? same spirit. Uh, so enlightenment is not a thing you obtain. You can't go to Costco and buy a pack of it. You know, I'm going to get some of that and a little of that. Um, from the start, awakening is just the way things are. Uh, yes, there's violence, and yes, there's corruption, and yes, there's hunger, and yes, there's poverty, and yes, there's work to do, and also everything is awake. Everything is awake. Activists in this room really need to hear this teaching. Yes, there is so much work to do, and everyone's doing their best, even when it, it seems so perverted to think that way. Um, and what he means, the oneness of practice and awakening, is that enlightenment is only enlightenment when it's put into practice. Do you hear that? So awakening is only awakening when you're actually practicing it. So it's active. He calls this active Buddhas. Does this make sense? Yeah? Because, so what he's doing is he's trying to knock down this idea that like you're practicing and one day you're going to get enlightened. He thinks this is ridiculous. Sorry for, for those of you who are doing that. <laughs> because what happens is then you think what you're doing is an investment, right? I keep putting in the time, putting in the time, and then one day it's just going to blossom and I'm going to wake up. Or now that you've heard the story about Dogen, you're going to wait for someone beside you to fall asleep. <laughs> So what he's saying is intimacy. Get closer to your life, and it's active. It's active. It's not passive. Peter Levitt says, a wonderful poet on Salt Spring Island and translator of Dogen, he says that you can sum up all of Dogen's teaching by understanding that all he's saying is come closer. I love that. Come closer. So we've had some people say that to us, right? Just come a little closer. But, but the world is saying that to us, right? Your sadness, when you don't defend against it, is just saying, come closer. Come closer. And your, the happiness, maybe that you don't know how to like completely get absorbed in, is just saying, come closer. Come closer. And we're like, no, I've got an identity here to take care of. <laughs> I can't get too much closer. And there's this real paradox in life, right? Is that we all want intimacy and we'll do anything for it not to happen. Right? Like, I really want to be connected to you. And then you do some stupid thing, right? Because there's also some part of us that's totally terrified of this. Right? They're going to let us down. They're going to smother us. Right? And then we're just still up here in the managing place. <coughs> you know? I'm going to get let down again.
what's it like just to actually be in the room? All the sounds, the fact that it's not perfect. It's just enough draft. The sounds, I'm trying to get enlightened. Right? I'm trying to get enlightened and the person beside me is just sleeping. And like, what do they think? They just come here and sleep? I'm trying to get enlightened. The third main teaching of Dogen, he calls Buddha going beyond Buddha. Um, And what this means is uh, creating a kind of Dharma rhythm in your life where uh, Patanjali has this term actually that he calls Anupashana, which means uh, seeing and going on seeing. Do, Do you know what I mean by that? So it's like Buddha going beyond Buddha means like to see your life, but to go on seeing it and go on seeing it and go on seeing it. So there's like a rhythm, right? It's kind of like you see this a lot. I don't know if anybody here in high school, you know, like, I don't know, dropped acid and then had some like deep insight in the rainforest. Anybody, you know, don't put your hand up. (laughs) Or like one day you're on retreat and you have some deep insight, right? And it changes your whole way of seeing things. But then you stop there. And now, the, and now your mind has gone into a pattern around the content of that. And then you've, you've kind of stopped. So, so Dogen, his third main teaching is always Buddha going beyond Buddha. So you have this experience of being awake and you keep going beyond it. And again, it's another way of shooting down enlightenment, right? That enlightenment's active, right? It's not like some place you get to in Thailand somewhere. Perfect beach, coconuts. My interpretation of that teaching, and Dogen doesn't really use these words, but the way I hear them, this Buddha going beyond Buddha, is really saying, like, don't be afraid. Because underneath settling in a view is being afraid. Like, don't be afraid. Take a risk and go look a little deeper at what you're already thinking you have insight into. Just look a little deeper. And don't be afraid. Maybe you can get that as a tattoo. (laughs) So what he seems to be saying here is that what you think of as enlightenment is just what you think of as enlightenment. If you think that is enlightenment, then that's what you think enlightenment is. And that's being afraid. He has this wonderful text we did this past summer where he also says, enlightenment is not what you think it is, right? Imagine if it were. And then you get enlightened and then you say, oh, it's not exactly like I thought. Or it's exactly like I thought. (laughs) So he's like Buddha going beyond Buddha is saying, go further, go further. You, you have some creative brilliance for a week and you make some really good art. And then some part of you kind of settles in that. Oh, this was a really... And you take it as an identity thing, right? Oh, I really had this. Oh, I've got this new thing now, right? And then you, you didn't go beyond it. So you didn't move, move past, past it. And then your enlightenment's not alive anymore. Right? It's like Grant's Joni Mitchell quote last week. Um, okay, the last, uh, number four. Um, the fourth main teaching of Dogen. Some scholar really wouldn't like that I'm doing this. Uh, but I really think there are four main teachings. 
The fourth one is abiding, this is a term he uses, abiding in one's dharma position. So dharma means reality or truth, the, the way things are. And a position is something that's constantly changing. So abiding in your dharma position, right now it's here. Michael's at the front of the room talking, this is how he talks. And then I'm with my son playing Lego. And I don't sit there with him going, you should notice the nature of the Lego. It's really, and it's just changing. I'm sorry I knocked that over, but let it go. It's just changing. <laughs> forgive me, like really forgive me. Um, how do you abide in a shifting position? Right? So it's not being like all postmodern and saying all positions are relative, they're shifting, you know. But how do you actually abide? How do you live in the place of shifting positions? The ground is constantly shifting. How do you live that as ethics? As someone who's upright. How do you do that? It's like when you take a uh, um, sparkler, you know, and you go like this, right? And you spin it and you get this enso. You get this circle, this mandala, right? But then you realize, oh, but those are just positions, right? Shifting, and the self is just this. These shifting conditional positions. So, so he uses this term that we're going to come across, dharma position, that to, to realize that every position is dynamic. And how do you abide in that? So you see this theme of intimacy again com- coming through there? Um, or, you know, it just occurred to me too, like, or being in this room. In this room, different people have a position, right? I'm here in this position. Yeah. Jess is here in this position. Ringing the bell. Rose is here in this position, wearing her tie. And she'll be chanting. Uh, Lana was in a position at the front, you know, uh, greeting you when you came in, saying, hi, welcome, you know. But how do you actually abide in the shifting positions that is this mutual experiment without then falling for the form of the position? and not seeing the intimacy of creating this space together. Like some people might walk in here, and because they have so many sangskaras, so much karma, all have, they, turn into their, they turn into their high school being, right? And this is just high school playing out. Oh, those people like hanging out together, so I'm going to go sit on that side of the room. You see that clique over there, right? And then we're acting out of our habits. And then we're not actually in this room together. Or center of gravity is this. Okay? Well, I started this center of gravity thing. I have no idea what center of gravity is. And sometimes I meet people and they're like, center of gravity is like... And I'm like... <laughs> and then I'll talk to someone else. I'm like, center of gravity is... And I'm like, I don't know what center of gravity is. You, you, how could you ever know what center of gravity is? How could I ever know what this block is? I really want to get to know this block. I can get to know this block as well as I could get to know center of gravity. So this is going beyond Buddha. Um, being willing to be here as a Sangha hard to be here with other people, isn't it? I don't know about you, but... Like, spiritual community for me makes me like... <laughs> I just like... I, as soon as I hear, oh, this is spiritual community, I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, all the radars off. You know? And then how do you go beyond that? And say, oh, look at... Someone has a really similar question to me. Like, uh, my dad also is really ill and I don't know how to take care of him and I'm burnt out and I just want to come here to to just like relax you know or I've got so much anxiety and look at that person over there they're way more anxious than me (laughs) and like it seems to be helping them a bit you know 
Or I knew that person six years ago when they started, and they were so neurotic. And like, they're a little less neurotic now. <laughs> I, think, I think we feel this. So I encourage you when you come into this room to come, come into this room uh, as Mitsu, as uh, close enough as a parent. You know? And then just to, to watch all our ideas about, you know, she can sit really well, she can't sit, you know, like, look at how well they bow. I'm just nothing, you know. I didn't go on the retreat. I never go on retreats. <laughs> I just don't have any money. I've been eternally broke, you know, and and uh you know i hate everybody <laughs> when you sit in the seal when you sit in the buddha mudra then the whole world is awake and if you take that further into community when you come here and you practice and you sit here in your life, you help other people in two ways. One is you enter your life and that helps other people to see somebody really in their life, right? Eccentric, odd, but upright, you know, not fooling people, you know. And it also helps people because you, you, you can sit. And it really helps other people when it's hard for them to sit. It's like when you sit beside someone who has a practice, you can tell that they're practicing. You can feel the years of practice. I don't know how you name it. I don't know what part of their body it is. But you can feel somebody's practice. And you learn more from that than anything anyone can ever say. So this is what Dogen's teaching. This stream of intimacy. And the way he's going to teach it in the fascicle we're going to read is by teaching about mountains and rivers. And saying, if you really study mountains and rivers, then you'll understand your mind and your heart and your life. Because mountains and rivers are living in the way you can live your life. And... One part of that sounds like, oh, that's so corny. Does anyone ever do that? That's so corny. Everything he's saying is so corny. I know all this. It's so corny. And then at another level, like to really read this uh, from this heartfelt place. So um, I'll stop there, even though I have about 10 more pages of notes. Um, It's so exciting to be teaching Dogen. You have no idea for me how how happy I am are there any comments or questions before we chant Um, one one of the two words you mentioned it also means kindness kindness which which word which word Uh and I remember it's also meant as a close as parent in the Chinese characters in the Chinese characters yeah as close as a parent, or kindness. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. This idea, um, I think the, the third of the, the go beyond idea seemed yeah. um, really to talk to you know, where we ended last week with this idea of in practice having some sort of insight yeah. and not, not discounting it and also not turning yeah. it into a solution. Yeah. And both of those things imply that you've gotten somewhere and you're making it into something. Yeah. Whereas that exhortation to go beyond it is, is more like stay intimate with it. Um, yeah. Treating it as a destination of, of either end of the spectrum. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, when you say that, I, I think I hear it more when you say it this week than last week. Because last week I heard them more like holding on, but yeah, sometimes when we discount something, that's interesting. That's another way of holding on to it, right? You discount it, and then you, you kind of hold on to it in the background in some way because you're, you're keeping it away, 
from your experience. It's like fake letting go. It's like letting go and drag. Is is discounting, discounting our experience. How, do, do people here do this? I do that. I do that a lot, actually. Now that I think about it, like you have, you feel something or you know something, and then oh no no, but it doesn't happen at that level. It's just like discounting yourself. Discounting yourself or just discounting an experience. Yeah. We must all do this all day to get yeah. through the day. Mm-hmm. It's like someone just says something a little, just a little unkind to you. Yeah? And you have to kind of like, just brush, brush it off. But you don't really? Yeah. That's, that's, that's good to grant. Someone else. Lori. I heard, Lori, you sound so sick. Yeah. He said, there's no such thing as enlightenment, just enlightened activity. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Shinra Suzuki loved Dogen, and he might be the person who really brought Dogen to life. Again. That's beautiful. Enlightened activity. So uh, uh, I think it should be known, too, and maybe I'll get into this next week, but I don't want to get too academic around Dogen, but Dogen's teachings weren't read for centuries and centuries and centuries and haven't actually been popularized until this century, which is really interesting. This century, this century, this century. This past century, since, since, since the uh, Buddhism came to the West, okay, that's when Dogen has actually become more popular than ever, um, mostly in Western Buddhism. And I think you'll see because of the language he uses and his constant playing with language. Um, why? He just, he speaks. You know, anyone here who's in the art world, you know, um, who's interested in, la- in language and, and narrative, and you're going to love to. So modern, so modern. Uh, you're probably not supposed to use that word modern, but I don't know what word to use. Oh, that might be worse. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, one more comment or question, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Something clever, or really dull. Yeah. 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 Given that our minds yeah. are so trained in the opposite direction, yeah. is that just that antidote that in the practice, beginners or intermediary or later, we're supposed to use as that imaginative antidote to the traumas of our mind, if you wish? Say more? Sorry? Say, say a little more? Um, well, my, my question, I guess, comes from from a practical yeah. practicing sort of yeah. thought, right? Yeah. Because the the pain of handling the emotion and meditation yeah. coming to yourself yeah. on a, on a second level is sometimes so so real. Yeah. Yeah. That you need to find something to turn it around. Right? Yeah. At the time when you're still limited. Yeah. And you yeah. Can still break away yeah. From that yeah. System. Uh-huh. Yeah. You have to kind of use some antidotes and kind of totally. Yourself totally. But I'm not sure that I want to call it trickery, right? Because that's not what it's about. So oh, it's that? totally trickery. <laughs> it's just a big. It's just a big trick. Right. <laughs> it's language. So, so f- from a Buddhist perspective, language is so sacred because it, it doesn't exist, and it's exactly what we use to perceive and to think and to love. And it can't be the actual thing. So it's trickery. So that's why Dharma talks are so important. Because what happens is we're practicing and we get into a groove. And the idea of the Dharma talk or the idea of the teachings is it it just allows us to hear something about the teaching for where we are in our position, where we are in our practice, just to change how we're thinking about our practice. 
But Tabby Joyce used to always say, 99% practice, 1% teary. Which isn't teary, but like... (laughs) And and what he means by that is, you know, the, the most important thing is you're practicing. But then the theory just shifts how you look at your practice. Because your traumas or your scars will show up also in relationship to your practices. Right? Your patterns of attachment will show up in all your relationships. So then as you have a relationship with practice, your patterns of attachment and aversion are going to show up there. But you need something to constantly change how you're looking at your practice so that there can be love and devotion there. Right? Just like, um, I don't know, sometimes you see like a really phenomenal film or something and it, it just kind of shifts how you see someone in your life, right? This is what culture does all the time. And so this is what, what the Dharma or the teachings are doing, is it just shifts how you're seeing. But it's rooted in practice. And it's a trick. Right? Lars von Triers did it to me this week. <laughs> it was completely shifted how I was thinking about things. Okay. So, let's finish chanting. And then I'll I'll be handing out Dogen next week. So, what are we doing with standing up? Let's stand up. with infinite compassion illuminate this endless field. May Mary Clement, Anne Hutchinson, Teresa Hibbert, Andrea Kirsch, Scott Beveridge, John Panagapka, Naomi Halliday, John Calderhead, Tracy Carroll, Saga Hanga, Phil Holboom, Dave Johnson, Find healing and peace at this time of illness. For our great abiding friends and Dharma brothers and sisters, James Hillman, Jenna Morrison, Anthony Cooper, Rita Anderson, Chris Vlahos, Jack Layton, Lynn St. John, Brad Dixon, Scott Walker, Brent Carroll, Sophia Borella, Valclav Havel, Christopher Hitchens, Joseph Junko, who are passing from this world. They have taken a great leap. The light of this world has faded for them. They have gone into a vast silence. They are borne away by the great ocean of birth and death. May they, together with all beings, realize the end of suffering and the complete unfolding of their way. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. 
May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted habits. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted habits. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May the tar sands be free. May the tar sands be free. And birds be free. And birds be free. And homeless people find shelter. And homeless people find shelter. And everyone find real shelter. And everyone find real shelter. 